Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Uh, Welcome this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Robert Frazier. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I was not here during worship because my my two-year-old was napping in the car with a fever, so... Malia's got her now. We did our swaparoo. We're here. It was a little easier when we lived closer and we could kind of go back and forth, but um, here we are. Welcome this morning. We are in the third week of our La Familia series. We're talking about what it means when we, we talk a lot about our micro churches, the smaller spaces where we live our lives in community, how they are extended spiritual families on mission. That's the language that we use, and we use that language in a very particular way. Um, we, are, we are getting, oh, hold on. This is not, it's not the right sermon. I should get the right sermon here. <laughs> All right, there we go. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's great to see you here for the second week of Advent. No. Um, all right. When, when we talk about extended spiritual family on mission, what does it mean? We talk about life together. What does that mean? We talk about being formed in community. What's, how do we do it? What does that look like? Today, oh, Ernie's got his hand up. I, I'm, I'm afraid to call on him, but let's, let's go. Well, we're doing at least one part, right? <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of kids around here. Um, we call it natural church growth. You just keep having kids until they run out of room, and then you stop. Um, today we're going to be diving in a little deeper. Two weeks ago, we, t- we really touched on family, and we touched on what it means to be family. And today we're going to – we talked two weeks primarily about how we have to leave behind the family of this world – the way that we've been formed by the ways of this world and start to grab hold of the true family that we're meant to. Uh, I watch, I watch too many kids geared, too many movies geared towards kids and preteens. Anybody else struggling with watching way too many movies geared towards preteens? The kid ones weren't as bad. The preteen ones are awful. Um, a few are enjoyable and, and we're trying to instill good taste in our kids for storytelling. We don't let them watch nonsense shows, that even though they love them. Like they, there's this one on Netflix called Ricky, Nikki, Dicky, and Dawn, and it's the worst. Oh, so horrible. Um, so we like we like push them towards good things, things that we enjoy, things that have good storytelling and meaningful content. And uh, and what's happened is our kids have learned that we have better taste than them, which feels like a win. And our older two. 
um, when they when they fight, they don't get to pick. And so if they can figure out a way to like agree, then they get to pick. But our older two have realized that we pick better than they do. And so they'll fight and be like, mom, we can't decide. And then they'll have us pick something because there's like shows that they've never seen that are from like years ago that are really good. And we can like curate years and years of storytelling. Um, and, and they like when we pick those shows. Um, one of the shows that we watched, like, do you know how there's a season between the time you're a kid and the time you have kids when you have no idea what the movies are that kids watch? Like, like at, between the time I was like 12 and the time I had my kids, which is like at 32, um, there was like 20 years of movies I hadn't watched. And, and one of those that we ended up watching as young adults uh, was The Bridge to Terabithia. And it was because one of our friends has, had helped make it. And so we, were, we wanted to watch it to like support them. And obviously, like, we bawled like babies watching this movie. Uh, but yesterday, we showed it to the kids again. Um, it's a it's a fairly typical coming of age story. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil the end for you. You should watch it. Um, there's a young prepubescent boy and his neighborhood girl. He has a crush on her, and they and they're really just trying to manage the stresses of home, the bullies at school, and they use kind of magical storytelling that helps them build the courage to overcome the things that they run up against in their actual lives. It's a it's a very common story, coming of age story, and we watched it yesterday and. Uh, and it reminded me that so many of the stories that our kids watch are about this common conflict that all of us experience and shape our lives from the time we're nine, 10 years old through the rest of our lives. And it's this. Kids feel like outsiders everywhere they go. Kids feel like they don't belong, especially from nine to about 15. Almost everybody has some really meaningful experience that's very difficult because they feel like I don't belong. At home, kids feel misunderstood and underestimated by their parents. They get yelled at and punished for things that are sometimes their fault and sometimes not their fault. If they have, if they have siblings, they feel like, like they're an alien, like they don't belong. They, they look around and they, and they wonder whether they're their mailman's kid because they couldn't possibly be from this family. I don't belong here. At school, young kids, they, they look around and everyone else seems to have it together. In their heads, they look around and think everybody else belongs. The shiny girls with the new clothes and the groups of adoring fans, the, the smart kids who know everything and hang out with their nerdy buddies, the strong kids who gather strength by picking on the weak. Even, even the weird kids seem to take solace in being together, playing Magic the Gathering in the library. I can... <laughs> Yeah, and in the 90s it was weird, now it's like cool, I guess. Um, most stories, they, they tread in this space because everybody felt this way. There's this forgettable middle where most of us ended up, hundreds of kids just trying to avoid the gauntlet of, of either good or bad attention that can make them a target. Looking longingly at the ones that seem to belong and, and wonder what it feels like. This is a universal experience. Everyone will feel out of place in some part of their life. And if you've always felt like you belong, it's probably because you're socially unaware. <laughs> it's probably because you just didn't realize you didn't belong or you didn't realize that you should have felt that you didn't belong. Everybody feels like they don't belong. And I want to I take a moment, and I, no matter 
what fears you have about this, I think that it's important space to tread. I want you to let your mind wander back to those places where you fell out of, out of place. Not, not in general, but you specifically. I want you to wander back in your imagination. What were you feeling when you felt out of place? What story were you telling yourself about who you were? What lies did you believe? What lies did you internalize from those circumstances about your identity? Jess Ahrens, who's the young protagonist in The Bridge to Terabithia, um, he's made a decision. Even though there's lots of conflict around him, he's going to keep his head down and try to keep his, his eyes, stay out of the view of the eighth grade bully who's a girl on his bus. He's going to try to stay out of the way of his angry father at home. And at one point, there's this scene where he, he was responsible to do these chores, taking care of their greenhouse, and he loses his father's work keys that have the store, the hardware store that he works at, and the keys to the register and the keys to the front door. And the father is just yelling at him about these keys, saying, listen, if you lost those keys, it's going to cost six, $700 to rekey all those spaces, and it's going to come straight out of my paycheck, and we can't afford that. He's yelling at him, and then the father, I'm, I'm sure, regretfully, started to yell because, because Jess was an artist and he loved to doodle and draw. He said, why don't you just draw me some money since that's all you can do. You can't do your chores, but you can draw. I mean, you draw me some money. Try to, try to find a way to make this right. The next day he's at school and he's, he's just stressing about the keys, trying to figure out where they are. And he's repeating to himself this phrase from his father. Maybe you can draw some money. Maybe you can take your art and do something good with it. He's, he's made an agreement that his love of art is not going to pay the bills, and so it's worthless in the eyes of his father. What are the voices that you hear when you look back? What are they saying in your head? What decisions have you made about your place in the world that you've been hearing in your head since you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, I, I have a really distinct memory as I was processing all of this last night. And it was, it was a real trauma that shaped more of my teenage years and my adult years than I'd like to, I'd like to admit. Um, I, had, I had not felt out of place until I was 12 years old. I, I, loved, I loved elementary school. It was, I look back on every moment of elementary school with fondness. I, I had a good group of friends. I did what I wanted every day. And with the exception of my teachers who were always frustrated that I talked too much, um, I loved elementary school. It was phenomenal. Sixth grade hit. I went to Lil Scott and there was, it's, it was the biggest middle school in the state at that point. There was like 1,700 kids in a middle school. Classes were packed, and I got into a group, a a group of classes that had none of my friends from elementary school. And all of a sudden, I didn't know who I was. I didn't have a place in the world where nobody knew me, no one knew my family. When you come from a family of seven kids, someone always knows one of your older siblings. 
and probably didn't like something about them, but at least they knew them. <laughs> um, at the same time, during sixth grade, I, I would try to find my friends during lunchtime, but they had made new friends in their classes because you only had 60 kids in your pod. And I remember going to the lunch table where my two best friends from elementary school were sitting, and they completely ignored me for the whole lunch. And it devastated my little 11-year-old soul, where I felt like I had belonged and I felt like I had a place. And all of a sudden, I didn't know who I was anymore. And, and that year was, it was a bad year. My older sister, Julianne, lost her eyesight that year. Um, I, was, I was being bullied at the bus stop. I was being beaten up by two eighth graders. <laughs> my parents knew a little bit about it, but it was, it was a really, really tough year. And even the last, my, my mom saw that I was struggling so much that she, she asked me if I wanted to go to school anymore, and I told her no. And then she homeschooled me for the last nine weeks, which meant I just skipped school. I just didn't go. Um, even my family, where I had felt safe, was, was starting dis to disintegrate around me. My oldest brother was leaving for college. My older sister had moved to a blind school a couple hours away. And between driving to the blind school and doctor's appointments and my dad's work, we were on our own. Like it was, I, as an 11-year-old, I remember distinctly feeling like there was no one who knew me and no one who was in my corner. And I started to make these agreements, started to make these, these heart decisions about who I was based on those moments that have shaped more of my life than you could ever imagine. These are the lies that I believed. I believed you don't belong. I believed that I was a burden. I believed that I was on my own. And I believed that no one was there to save me the four fundamental lies that I had internalized about myself. Four lies that shaped my adolescence, still haunt me 28 years later. There's still things that come up in my counseling appointments as a 40-year-old, are these lies that I had believed. It didn't matter if they were true or not. There wasn't anybody in my life to counter these narratives. And probably the only one who noticed at all that I was going through this pain was my mom, but. She didn't have the ability to hear the voices in my head. I didn't have the language to share that with her. And she didn't even have the sort of identity-forming voice that I needed. There's something fundamental to who we are that's formed and that's misshapen by our families of origin. And some of you are thinking, yeah, you don't know half of the nonsense that my family put me through. And the others of you are trying to defend your family in your head, like, no, they were fine. It was good. Like, you're trying, you're trying to be, like, loyal to your family from your childhood, even though you know that there are broken things there. At the end of our time together last two weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in a few places today. Mark chapter 3, 31. Then Jesus... Jesus' mother and brothers, they came to see him. They stood outside, and they sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
And then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus had gone off the rails. He was doing these things that were creating a, a stir across the whole region of Galilee. And his family came to collect him because they knew that he was a problem. They, they were seeing him as literally out of his mind. They were gathering him up so that he wouldn't bring shame to their family. You're Jesus. You've never, you've never sinned in your life, and your family is collecting you because you're bringing shame upon your family. But what Jesus does is he reframes for us what it means to be family. And this was, this was a radical statement. This is a shot across the bow of everyone in Galilee and everyone in Israel. The systems of Judaism were built on the backbone of this civic society that required rigid adherence to extended family structures with obligations. And especially as an oldest son, his highest loyalty and, and his deepest obligations would have been to his family and tribe and then ultimately to Israel and to God. But here's this man who comes claiming to be the Messiah, reconfiguring the very order of family, the ultimate institution built into the fabric of creation. Okay, when Jesus is questioning what it means to be family, family, like, we have a very thin view of family. Like, basically, we all decide if we want to accept our family or reject our family, and we all do whatever we want with our family. We feel almost no obligation towards our families. But in the first century and through all of history, the family was the very center of how we exist in the world. Jesus is not just rethinking who, is, are, who his loyalties are to. He's challenging the ties that bind us together as family, clan, tribe, and nation. And it's not just a flippant remark where, like I would have said that, and I would have basically been like, oh, my family, you know how they are, but who's really my family? And I would like use it as a way to like dismiss my family. But Jesus is doing this thing where he's reordering the very created order. He's creating for himself a new creation. He's reinventing the family into something that's much better than blood and DNA. The idea of family is kind of a nice thing, right? Like you, you, see, you see across most literature, the idea of family is this ideal of deep connection, of love, of care, of safety, of provision. But the reality of family is something that's so, so different. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but just raise your eyebrows if your family has disappointed you. <laughs> I don't see a lowered eyebrow in the house. Uh, our families, the idea that we have of what family ought to be is so radically different from our experience. Even the best humans, they build terrible families. Have you realized that? Like there's like wonderful people in your life and then you meet their, their wife and their kids and you're like, oh my gosh, how can you be so good here and so bad at that? And all of us come from like whatever family background we have. And when we get married, the, the ideal is like, oh, we're going to figure this out. Like we, we're going to take the lessons that my parents learned and we're going to do better than they did. We, we, we'd have to, right? Like it couldn't, couldn't get any worse. 
even incredible people can be bad fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. And I'm not saying that I'm a particularly good person, but I, I deeply love my kids. I fret for them. I pray for them. I think about them constantly. And every week I find myself yelling at the top of my lungs at a five-year-old to try to get him to listen to me. You know, like I, I've got deep flaws as a parent. And human families are these sets of obligations, expectations that we heap on each other, demands for how that we're going to be cared for and what we owe to one another. And when those are trespassed, they feel like betrayal. We expect my mom is going to cuddle me and be affectionate. She's going to take care of me. And some mothers don't have it within them to do that. My father's going to be around and know what to say and when it needs to be said. And most fathers can't do that. My, my siblings are going to help me take care of my aging parents. No, they're worthless. You have no idea. No, just kidding. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, you're, fi- you're fine. Listen, I have four sisters. I shouldn't have to take care of my parents. I married an oldest, I married an oldest daughter. I know where my obligation is, okay? Okay. Uh, I I expect that my spouse is going to have the energy to listen to me when I really need it. And you know what? Lots of times she doesn't. We watch a lot of Bluey in our house. Any Bluey fans out there? Um, I think of myself as I should be like Bandit Healer, who's the dog father. The dog father. I like that. The dog father on, on Bluey. And he's like... He, he's like engaged and funny and like he like jumps in with his kids. They're only nine minute episodes. I can be a good dad for nine minutes at a time. But like that's, that's the vision I have of what it means to be a good father is to like to be engaged. And you know what? I'm like most of the time I like am laying on, the, on my couch and like scrolling my phone mindlessly. And Theo's like, dad, are you listening to me? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not listening to you. And I don't want to because I'm so tired because I was up all night with you and you're, yeah. But we, like family's just one big disappointment from what we think that we ought to be and what they ought to be. And we are one big disappointment to our family. And there's two reasons for that. First is these families are filled with people who haven't yet learned to be who they're meant to be. It's filled with unformed sinners wallowing in our self-pity, demanding our selfish desires and pursuing our selfish gain. That's the obvious reason. But the second is these families are temporary structures. And they're meant to fulfill an important but a short-term outcome. Make sure you can stay alive till you fend for yourself. That's their basic function, is to keep you alive. But of course, we know deep down that they were meant for so much more. But rarely do they do what they're meant to do. We're all aching for our families to be something that they're incapable of being. Loving, supportive, generous, selfless, safe, happy places where we are seen, known, belong, and not forgotten. Where we have an important role to play. We want these things because they were written in our souls. We've been asking our family to do something that we ache for endlessly, is to be safe and to belong and to be seen and to be known and to have an important place, an important role to play. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis, this is a famous quote, but I think it speaks to this more than anything. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find myself in a desire which no family in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another family. If none of my earthly desires satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pursuits were never meant to satisfy it. Earthly families were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it in us to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they're only kind of a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. I think C.S. Lewis is talking about what it means to belong to God. The very ache of our soul for a family that we truly belong to is the true family God made for us. What is this desire that no family, no childhood experience delivers on, but we all crave more than we imagine? God gives us a picture of it. It's absolute, unequivocal belonging. Knowing that we have a place, that we are truly seen in all of our fullness, that we are loved unconditionally, to have a family that we belong to and belongs to us. This is such a deep longing that it taints all other experience of family so that even the best families are disappointing in relationship to the ache inside of us. And that's by design. The God of the universe wants to make sure that we aren't satisfied with blood relations and peaceful holiday dinners. Although that's preferable to terrible holiday dinners. 1 John 3 says this, see how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world, they don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children. But he's not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. This passage in so much of 1 John is deeply concerned with the work of understanding God's family culture. Because our family cultures, they're broken. And if we try to superimpose our family cultures and say that's what God's family culture is like, then we're going to say, I don't want to be a part of God's family culture either. We're going we're to reject it because it's, it doesn't satisfy the ache inside of us. What he's basically saying here is this is not going to make sense to us. God's family culture is going to feel out of place because we have believed and grabbed hold of the lies of our culture. We fundamentally have crafted our identities in response to the disappointments of our family of origin. So the ways of God don't make sense to our brains. Um, Matt Hyde, who's the pastor here, has been teasing our leadership team um, because we, we, we were kind of in a... Uh, 
in an abusive relationship with, with the space that we were in before we were here. And we're, we're kind of like foster kids who get adopted and then they're worried that they're gonna get kicked out because like they don't belong in, the, in this new healthy family. And so we're just like all cleaning our room every day to make sure that things are okay. And Matt's like, listen, like you're at home here. You can feel safe. We're not gonna treat you like you've been treated before. But that's the way that we enter into God's family is we come from these disappointing family experiences and then we're just sitting around hoping that God doesn't kick us out. Hoping he doesn't notice how truly bad we are. Hoping that our meager attempts at obedience will keep us in his good graces. His goodness just doesn't make sense to us. But it's also something that we're so deeply craving and and this is what we're trying to do as a community is to understand and start to act like we belong in God's family by offering and creating that same kind of family culture to the people around us. Um, we're, we're seeing some incredible stories at, at Wonder School, our, our preschool. And one, I'll just give the, the basic outline. There's a, there's a family who has been struggling financially and our community participated in some just a benevolence care for this family who's struggling. And it was, it was this act of generosity that was unexpected and was overwhelming to the family. And so their initial response was, whoa, what is this? What are you guys trying to do here? <laughs> like they were very suspicious of it, not even, not even knowing, like they're like, we don't take charity was their response. Even though they, they deeply needed what we were offering them, they were, they were so thrown back by this act of generosity that they were frozen in it. It didn't make sense to their hearts. And then as Jesse has been working with his family and just rolling out a red carpet of care and generosity and, and as they're worried about their place and all these things, she's just reassured them that they love them and they belong there and that they're for them. This woman's response was, there's something weird here. <laughs> there's, there's something that I just fundamentally don't understand about this place. And that's our response to God's family is that we fundamentally don't belong because we're not like that. We're not deserving of the kind of unmitigated grace that God heaps on us. And as his generosity flows over us, we just feel overwhelmed by it and perplexed by it and don't even know how to receive it. In Romans 9, it says, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I'm now going to call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. This is where we need to stop and go deep today. The good news for us and for everyone in the world is that the God of the universe, even though we made ourselves outcasts, ran after us and called out and said, you still have a home here. He's been looking off over those hills after his prodigal kids saying, come back home. I have a place for you even though you don't want it. Even though you don't deserve it, even though you spit on my generosity, you still belong in my family because my family, my family is where you were made for. This deep longing that we're hoping for to belong, to be seen, to be loved, and to have a purpose 
this is where we find it, is an invitation into God's family. In Galatians 4, 5, it says, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. We're still acting like slaves. We're acting like slaves who were bought and freed, and we're so thankful, but we're still acting like slaves and like property, not like kids. We're still living out in the slave quarters along the riverbanks where we were graciously allowed to stay instead of moving into the mansion of our Father where we've belonged all along. We weren't just saved from the sin and the law, but we were adopted as God's own children. Gosh, I'm emotional today. We're trying to imagine what it means to be this extended spiritual family on mission together. It's an extended family because it means it's this whole community. It's anybody who says, I want to be a part of this, they belong here. It's made up of micro churches because as much as I love you all and I care about you all and I want to hear every one of your stories, in a room with 150 or 160 people on Sunday mornings, I can't hear your story. I can't know what you need and I can't do the things that you need me to be for you. And so we break up into smaller, like we, we need to break up our micro church into like three micro churches still because there's like may, way too many kids. But like micro church is that environment where we can truly be family. This is extended family on mission. And those places are where we live as family on mission. We're family because we live under a covenant. Families are always built on covenant. It starts with the bride of Christ and God himself in a marriage covenant that's unbreakable, where we've been received into and creating a new family alongside the Father that then brings with itself this multiplication of the kingdom of God. The covenant is where we start by saying, I am united with Christ. There's nothing that can take me out of his presence. And with that comes deep connection. With that comes complete belonging. With that comes the safety of family and the provision of a good father. And with that also comes obligations where I have responsibility in this extended family on mission to love and care for the people that God has entrusted to me. This is what it means to be that extended family on mission, which means that we're participating in God's plan to bring all of creation under the rule and reign of Christ. And so when we get together, it's not for ourselves. And it's, have you ever met a family that's like super tight knit, but it's all about them? And it's like all inward focus to care for them and their kids. And there's no soft edges where you can belong or be apart because they, they, have, they believe that there's a scarcity of time and money that all has to be focused inward. The kingdom of God is the opposite, where we have soft edges and everybody has a place to belong and to be a part. And our mission is to see the kingdom of God overlap with the kingdom of this world. And some people are going to be so enamored with the belonging, with belonging to God that they're going to say, I have to be a part of this thing. But before we can live as these extended families on mission, we first have to wrap our heads around this idea. And this doesn't make sense to me, and so I'm saying it out loud in hopes that it becomes true. 
God really is our true Father. Let me say it again. I want you to open your eyes and open up your hands and receive this. God really is our true Father, the one that we've been hoping for for all of these years, the one that we've ached for, that our, that our own fathers could never be. We have to grab hold of our identity as beloved children who have a new name. We have this new family name where we belong to Yahweh. We're his people. We also have this new identity, a distinct identity. We talked about that Revelation passage where God gives us our own name, our own place, our own particular place in his family with this stone that he hands to us. In Romans 8, 15, it says, So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, or Father. Uh, you've probably heard some preaching on this passage. This is the very first sound that almost every human on earth makes with their lips. Right, mothers? <laughs> This is the very first sound that almost every child makes. And it's actually the same sound across almost every language on the planet. You take 50, this is, this is a cool little linguistics thing, but there's, if you take 50 languages that were derived from Proto-Indo-European, which is like an old school language that probably came from like the Tower of Babel. That's what we're talking about. And all of them have this sound. Ba or pa and ah. All of them have this sound that was written onto their lips and the very first words that they ever said was da-da. The same, the same words that came off the lips of Winnie, she, she had a fever last night and so I was holding her for three hours this morning and she sat next to me and in her, in her aching little body cried out da-da. This was the name written on your heart from the very beginning. The true family that you belong to was to cry out to Father and say, Dada. Truly belong to Him. Uh, Tim Keller has this great quote. I, th I think we have it up here, don't we? Please, I don't have it. Okay. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. I love that visual because it's true. It's absolutely true. The only one, the only person who's going to wake up a king in the middle of the night is a child who doesn't know better and a child who belongs to that king. This is what it means to belong truly to God. This is the way God sees you, not as some stranger or far-off refugee that he doesn't know, but rather as a long-lost child, not adopted into a new home, but rather like a king whose child was kidnapped at birth. Like Rapunzel, entangled. Right, kids? Rapunzel was taken from her home as princess, and she was imprisoned in a castle until she found out her true identity and longed and made her way back to belong to her family once again. And that's what it's like when we step into the true home of God. We're adopted back into the family that we're meant to have. And we have to learn to say our dad's name again and to trust him and to live in his family. In Ephesians 1, it says that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself 
through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I'm going to invite the band to come up because we're going we're gonna to finish up here in a second. And if you, yeah. Got to get the babysitter so that Malia can come back over. Why don't you stop for a second? Everybody just get quiet, kids quiet, and listen. Some of you are already feeling this, but we just we need to go back. Remember at the beginning when we started talking about what it meant to when we were kids and the lies that we believed about ourselves, about our identities that we constructed to deal with not belonging, the protective layers that we built to protect our hearts. To belong in God's family, we have to bring our Father to those places and to those lies that we've believed. My first lie was, you don't belong. And what the Father has laid on my heart over and over again is this. Robert, you not only belong, but everything that I have is yours. I have yearned for you from the beginning of time. This is the lie that I had. This is the truth I had to receive to replace the lie that I did not belong. When I hear the voice, you are a burden. What my father says is you could never be a burden because you're my child. Even in the hardest moments, I delight in providing for you. This is the truth I needed to replace the lie that I am a burden. I believed that I was on my own, that no one knew and no one cared. What the father told me is, dear child, even when you were as far away from me as your heart can imagine, I was always with you. My rod and my staff were comforting you. This is the truth I needed to replace the lie that I was on my own. My last lie is, I believed that no one was going to save me and that I had to do it myself. And what the Father's been speaking to me is that I've been saving you from your sin from the very beginning. You don't have to save yourselves. I already did it. This is the voice of the Father that he decided from eternity past to adopt us into his own family and bring, him, bring us to himself in Christ Jesus. He wanted to do it because it gave him great pleasure. We have this work to do of replacing the voice in our head and the voice of the enemy, the great deceiver, with the true, loving, kind, compassionate voice of the Father, which is the voice of Jesus. This is what his voice sounds like. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, if anyone would come to me, I would give them the right to become children of God. It's easy to kind of do this in a vacuum on our own, but we need people to hear our lies that we believe. People need to know the lies that are in your head about who you are. I've had mentors and pastors and counselors who have done this for me along the way. But I want you to take a second right now. And I want you to write down the lies that you believe about yourself. Take out your phone or a piece of paper or a pen right now. 
the lies that came to mind about your identity that have shaped how you see yourself. I want you to write them down. The vows that we've agreed within our hearts. When we write them down, when we speak them aloud, we invite the Holy Spirit to speak his truth over us. that's a long way to say that this is what it looks like to be God's family, a family on mission, is that when we gather together, we sit and we hear one another's stories. We speak encouragement and truth over these stories. We give perspective and we challenge the lies that have taken hold of us. When When we sit in my huddle week in and week out, we share the struggles and pain, and we work down to the lies that are driving the sin in our lives. We replace those lies, we repent of those lies, and grab hold of the truth of God. This is the work of Family on Mission, is to bring to the light the lie so that it might be destroyed by the truth of God. What I want to challenge you to do is to bring this list with you to your huddle bring this list with you to your micro church when you gather. Even after service today, I want to challenge you, grab somebody you know here. Tell them the lies that have been ringing in your mind about who you are and how you see yourself. And allow that other person to prophetically pray the truth of God over you. That you belong to him and you belong to his family that you have a place and that you're safe, that he will provide for you and that there's nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. After service, our elders and our prayer team will be available, but I, I want to challenge you to sit with somebody and take away the power of those lies to form you and to take away the joy of God's family. And as you come forward to receive communion this week, the invitation is to confess to God that you're not going to allow those lies to define you anymore. And you're going to receive the truth of your identity, where he's our Abba Father and we belong to him completely. Lord Jesus, this, this is the gift of your presence is that we no longer have to wallow in the brokenness of this world and in the lies of this world and in the the stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are and where we belong. Lord God, as we receive communion, we repent and we confess that we have bought into the lies that have been spoken over us. Help us to recognize who you truly are, that we belong in your family. It's only by your grace and by the power and work of Christ in our lives. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.